0: Hi Squad! Welcome, or welcome back, to Crime Squad Podcast. I'm your host, Natasha, here in London, Ontario. Crime Squad brings you weekly episodes about Canadian true crime cases, both solved and unsolved. This episode is part two of the series, The Devil's Playground, which is about the Elgin Middlesex Detention Centre. This facility is in, yes, of course, as I mentioned last time, my hometown of London, Ontario, on Exeter Road. If this is the first episode you're listening to of Crime Squad podcast, stop immediately and go back and listen to part one, which was released two weeks ago. Then go back and listen to the very first episode of Crime Squad pod and continue on until you're caught up. Hey, you never know unless you ask, right? A girl's got to promote herself. Be sure to subscribe and rate Crime Squad Podcast so you don't miss any of my weekly uploads. I will, of course, post media content related to this episode on my Instagram at Crime Squad Pod, as well as my website, which you can access through the link in my Instagram bio. For those of you who have been with me since the beginning, I think it should be clear by now that I am a big believer that everyone has a story. And while someone's background or upbringing doesn't justify the actions they take against others by committing criminal acts, it does benefit humanity to understand there is still a person behind those criminal acts. Last episode covered off the untimely death of Randy Drysdale who died in April of 2009 while in custody at EMDC. In November of the same year, Laura Strawn's life was also cut short. Four years later, on Halloween night 2013, Adam Cargus would join Laura and Randy as those whose lives were ripped away, all while at EMDC. I do my best to find out as much information about victims and how they lived, what they liked to do, who they loved, who they were. Sadly, media outlets aren't as quick to point out the good qualities of these individuals who are mostly defined by one thing, their criminal records. If some of these stories seem shorter than my usual episodes, it's because after hours of digging, I just wasn't able to find anything I could use to celebrate the life of these individuals. Okay, let's dive in. had a troubled life. Born in 1984, his childhood was reportedly a lot of being bounced around between foster homes. At some point in his life, he received a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. A person with bipolar disorder tends to experience moods in extremes. They can go from severe depression to episodes of mania. Manic episodes can be described as feelings of overwhelming joy, excitement or happiness, a huge increase in energy with a reduced need for sleep and reduced inhibitions. Not every person with bipolar disorder experiences the same symptoms with the same intensity. I was only able to find one photograph of Keith and in it, he isn't looking at the camera. He looks lost in thought and is wearing an all black flat cap. He has a heart shaped face and an angular nose. He sports a neck tattoo and in particular, this particular photo, his lips appear to be pursed. It must have been snapped at an inopportune time. Perhaps he was unaware. Keith had a history of mental illness and in 2014, he was incarcerated at EMDC on charges of public mischief and possession of a controlled substance. This wasn't his first time being locked up for criminal acts. In fact, according to Keith himself in a letter he wrote to Kevin Egan, a lawyer known for going against EMDC in various lawsuits, Keith advised he had been locked up at EMDC from December, 2009 to May, 2010 then again from November 2010 to January 2011. Prior to his stay in 2014, the last time he'd been incarcerated at the detention center was March through July of 2013. I wish I knew more about Keith and his life. What I do know was that he had formerly been in a relationship with a woman who was hearing impaired, the woman I'm not going to name for privacy reasons. So EMDC has a special telephone, which is called a TTY machine, and it's used to communicate with people who are deaf or have difficulty speaking. The machine works by translating spoken words to text that scrolls across a screen belonging to the individual who needs it. They can read the words and respond back to people if needed. We'll come back to this in a second. In 2014, Keith reached out to Kevin Egan, who at the time was leading a class action lawsuit against EMDC, alleging inadequate care among many other human rights violations. Keith wrote Kevin a letter on August 8, 2014, where he revealed he had been assaulted by other inmates over medication and canteen money at his previous day in late 2009 through early 2010. He also alleged that at one point during another period of incarceration, at EMDC, he was attempting to use the TTY phone to speak to his partner. Keith indicated that the operations manager choked him, slammed him into a wall, and punched him because he was irritated with the ongoing efforts to phone his family. Although the operations manager obviously denied this, Keith claimed the social workers at EMDC validated that Keith was not in fact lying. According to Keith, the operations manager then said, quote, I run the floor, not the social workers, end quote. In an effort to determine, excuse me, in an effort to undermine the conclusion they'd come to, Egan wrote back to Keith and provided him a form to fill out to join the class action suit. On August 16, 2014, Keith filled out the form and checked off the following. Subjected to overcrowded conditions, assaulted by inmates, assaulted by guards, injured and required treatment, denied medications and medical treatment, had medication taken by other inmates. Egan, knowing what he knows from representing various former inmates and their families related to complaints about EMDC, found Keith's claims valid. It seems Keith's mental health began to deteriorate or he was experiencing a mental health challenge, because in late September of 2014, Keith began acting out. First, he flooded half of an entire unit by clogging the toilet in his cell. Because of this, he was moved to segregation. Somehow, while in segregation on September 28th, he set a fire in his cell and was transferred from that cell to cell number 15. The morning of september 29th keith brazenly showed correctional officer jackson a strip of material he'd torn off his blanket keith's blanket was supposed to be tear proof to stop high-risk inmates from crafting weapons or other implements of destruction keith reportedly told staff members he was going to make a weapon out of a ceiling light none of the correctional officers he told this to took him seriously But as a precautionary measure, they told a superior officer about the strip of material Keith had ripped from his blanket. When it was time for lunch that day, officers decided they did not want Keith to have access to the metal trays food is typically served on. These trays can easily be fashioned into weapons. Instead, Keith was to receive a sandwich, specifically peanut butter and jam. Now, inmates at EMDC actually take their meals in their cells. So it's not like, um, you know, you see in movies and things like that where everybody kind of congregates in a common eating area. Um, So, again, it is just in the cell and it's delivered through a hatch in the door. So when Keith was served the peanut butter and jelly sandwich through the metal hatch in his door, um, he banged on the cell door and demanded a different sandwich stating he was allergic to the jam. Keith at this point had his arms out the door through the hatch and correctional officer Jackson and a colleague asked a superior officer if they could use force, specifically pepper spray, to force Keith's arms back in the cell door so the hatch could be locked. The superior officer declined this request and said the use of force wasn't necessary. The event that unfolded over the next 22 minutes was captured on video surveillance footage. You might remember from part one of this series that EMDC claims they cannot watch the surveillance footage or videos in real time because there's not enough staff. That 22 minute clip that we're going to explain in a minute here somehow made its way to a USB key and was then mailed to CBC News where the popular program The Fifth Estate began its own investigation into the many deaths at EMDC. Please note here, squad, that the following segments going to contain descriptions of suicide and maybe distressing in nature. If you want to skip this portion, skip forward about two minutes, 35 seconds. In the video, Keith is seen taking that same strip of blanket he notified officers about earlier. He pushes his arms out of the hatch in the cell door, which again, they're normally locked, but because officers could not get Keith to put his arms back in his cell after the initial issue with the PB&J sandwich, it was left open. In the video, you can see that Keith is working really hard at attempting to tie the strip of fabric to the locking mechanism on the hatch. This begins at approximately 1.05 p.m. At 1.15 p.m., an officer arrives with a different sandwich for Keith, which he places on the hatch without looking in the room. He doesn't seem to notice the strip of fabric tied to the door. He quickly turns and walks away. At 1.19 p.m., one of the correctional officers completes a check, something that happens every 20 minutes for security reasons. This officer notices the fabric on the door. And she looks inside. She looks inside the window on the cell door and sees Keith's feet on the floor. It only took a second for her to realize what was happening. As she tugged on the fabric, she felt it was taut, and at that point she exclaimed, get the knife, oh my God, he's hanging, get the knife, get the knife. It took the force of three officers to get the cell door open. Although Keith was transported immediately to hospital, he succumbed to his injury the next day. His obituary reads that he passed away at London Health Science Center's Victoria Hospital in his 31st year on September 30, 2014, with his mom, sister, and best friends by his side. He is listed as a loving father to seven children, Summer, Seth, Leanna, Amelia, Clarissa, Midnight, and Ryder. He was an uncle to five nieces and nephews and had 36 cousins. His sister, Marcia Patterson, was heartbroken by the news of her brother's suicide. She She described it as, quote, heartbreaking and said, quote, I couldn't see my brother doing this. He was looking for attention. He wanted someone to talk to. And yet again we have to wonder why did no one intervene at EMDC when Keith was clearly suggesting violence? Why was he allowed to keep the piece of fabric he'd ripped from his safety blanket? What the hell happened here? This incident brought to light questions about mental health and suicide awareness training for EMDC staff. This is definitely a tragic story of someone who needed more attention than what he was given by correctional officers. Keith was practically begging for assistance and it just wasn't there for him. On the day he died, officers found a note scrawled in his cell that can only be described as a crude suicide note. Amidst the other graffiti, Keith had scrawled, Keith Patterson, here today, gone tomorrow. Keith Patterson's death was preventable under the right conditions. Someone could have intervened and taken the strip of blanket away. Someone could have gotten Keith psychiatric help after he repeatedly caused disturbances in his cell. The list could go on. If Keith's death was preventable and that doesn't sit well with you, this next story will surely leave a pit of dread heavy in your stomach. Look at a successful person, you know, at least outwardly. To take a step back, look at someone who takes all the boxes of success from society's perspective. Beautiful family, large house, college or university educated, a high paying job. Outwardly, these kinds of people project the dream. Everybody wants to be them or be like them. Social media aside, though, do these people actually have it all together? Or are there cracks beneath the surface that threaten to shatter and expose what's really going on? The thing is, if someone like Jamie High can wind up naked, incoherent and dead in a jail cell, it could happen to anyone. What makes Jamie High so special? To so many, Jamie had a perfect life. Little did they know, it would end in a perfect nightmare. A note to listeners, there is a harrowing version of this story written by Randy Richmond called Indiscernible. A lot of my information has been gleaned from that article because it is so thorough and really gives an inside look. If you want to read it, you can access my sources through my website and the the link is in my Instagram bio. Okay squad, let's go on a journey through the life of Jamie High. Jamie was born and raised in a town called Dunville. It's about 170 kilometres east of London, Ontario. And before it merged with Haldimand County in 2001, it was a town with a population of approximately 5700 people. Jamie, born on October 7, 1974, grew up in Dunville, and had no shortage of adventures to be had. There were forests and fields and the long, winding Grand River. For any fishing fans out there listening in, the river hosts a myriad of species, from both large and smallmouth bass, walleye, northern pike, rainbow trout, and so many more. There is one fish in the Grand River, though, that Dunville holds in high regard. It's the catfish, also known as the mudcat. In fact, Dunville actually hosts the Mudcat Festival annually in June to celebrate the Mighty Mudcat. The festival actually sounds really fun. It's free of charge. It includes a parade, strongman slash strong woman contests, a midway, and even fireworks. There's usually a car show and live music. That is small town celebration at its finest. It's no surprise that Jamie's childhood was spent fishing and hanging with friends. He was also sporty and played both baseball and hockey. He loved hockey and would never turn down a game, whether it be street or ice. His family is tight-knit and very loving. His sister, Jessica, isn't shy to say she adored Jamie. And neither are his mother and father. Jessica fondly recalls that even though Jamie was growing into a teenager, who in theory should want nothing to do with his kid sister. Jamie would tuck her in and read her bedtime stories at night, even if friends were waiting to hang out with him, and Jamie's parents fondly recalled he could light up any room he entered, be it with a joke, a smile, or even a simple glance. As Jamie ages from boy to teenager, the story begins to sound like the script of a Hallmark movie that takes place in a small town, athletic, handsome, and outgoing. According to Shannon Gold, a former high school sweetheart of Jamie's, quote, he was a catch. He was charming. He was good looking. Everything was fun. He said and did all the right things, End quote. And so like most romance movie plots, boy meets girl. And the girl was Angeline. Angeline went by Angie. She was a year younger than Jamie and popular as well. Not only was she athletic, having played for the high school soccer team as well as being on the cheerleading squad, but she was named prom queen at the end of her high school career. It seems only logical that she and Jamie would have a brief romance in high school. And in true romance movie plot twists, their relationship wouldn't last and they'd go their their separate ways. With high school over, Angie began to establish herself in a sales career. Jamie went into the family business for a time and then decided to move to London to try his hand at a career in real estate. Dunville was always there though, with friends and family who stayed behind. And in 1999, one of Angie's cousins set up a date for Jamie and Angie during Dunville's annual Mudcat Festival. It was like no time at all had passed between them. In 2003, Jamie and Angie tied the knot. And from there, life was a fairy tale angie and jamie in their 20s were a power couple jamie had earned his real estate license and angie had been promoted to higher sales jobs they were doing really well for their age bracket four years after they were married the couple welcomed a son jamie loved being a father and gave it his all not only was he an active and engaged father who loved to play with cars and other toys but he also was a true provider Jamie was able to move into commercial real estate, which means he was dealing in multi-million dollar deals and making hefty commissions. In 2011, the couple was blessed with a second child, a daughter. Jamie High, by all accounts, was a very handsome man. There are photographs of him online, and even when he is deep into his challenges, he is still very attractive. In one of the photographs, Jamie High has what I would call an oval-shaped face. His facial structure doesn't change in the pictures, but the thinness of it does, depending on what he's going through. In this photo, Jamie smiles at the camera, and his pinkish, full lips reveal straight, white teeth. He smiles less with one side of his face, which gives him a charming lilt. Jamie has large, oval eyes with heavy-set eyebrows. His nose gives him character, the shape of it bulbous, yet somehow pinched all at the same time. But this combination is oddly enticing. He has a mop of dark hair atop his head, and it even has a bit of a curl to it. In a younger photo of Jamie, he has long hair and it's definitely luxurious curls. All this combined with his physique, which is very much in shape. At this time in his life, Jamie must have felt like he was on top of the world. A beautiful wife, two wonderful children, a promising career. Not only that, but as mentioned, he had an excellent physique. At some point in his early 30s, he joined a gym in St. Thomas near his home in Union. Jamie is apparently what you would call jacked. He had begun to develop big muscles, well-defined muscles. <laughs> Jamie clocked in at ten and 185 pounds but could easily bench press 460 pounds four times in a row. At the gym, he makes a group of male friends, guys who like to build muscle. The thing is though, they also enhance their bodies with the use of steroids. By 2014, Jamie starts injecting himself with anabolic steroids. He keeps this information private and doesn't share it with family and friends. But there's only one place that can lead. And that's a web of lies that can backfire at any time. The gym becomes a second family of sorts. And everyone enjoys socializing together. Not only the gym, but at house parties. Enter Julie Ferguson, a female fitness trainer. Julie and Jamie exchange phone numbers. It's the summer of 2014 the same time Jamie begins to inject steroids. He actually, at this point, leaves Angie and his children. He has started a relationship with Julie and he moves in with her. But this isn't the only thing going sour in Jamie's once perfect life. Though he has never been known as a big drinker and was very health conscious with with his constant working out, he began to smell of alcohol during the day. Friends and colleagues had a hard time believing this because Jamie had it all together. Though it might have seemed that way, the reality was things were slipping. He had lost on a financial deal, something that turned out very badly for him. It was actually in 2013 that people began to notice Jamie's change in personality. Jamie, once outgoing, now seemed withdrawn and solitary. His family offered him help, but Jamie said he'd be okay. But he wasn't okay. He was using alcohol to try to cope, but this was causing a larger rift between him and Angie. And it goes deeper than that. Jamie is experiencing mental health challenges. He does the right thing and speak to his family doctor in August of 2014 He asks for a referral to a mental health clinic at the St. Thomas Hospital. At the appointment, he reveals he is experiencing depression and anxiety, as well as drinking daily episodes of mania and difficulty falling asleep. He has lost interest and motivation in life. His new love interest, Julie, can tell something isn't right. And this is where Jamie's battles truly begin. His legal battles, anyway. He's never been a violent guy. He and Julie have an argument, at which point she asks Jamie to leave the house. He does, but comes back later that night to try to talk to Julie. He tries to get into the house, and a relative who is talking on the phone with Julie at the time becomes alarmed and calls police. Jamie isn't aware that the police have been called on him, but he does end up leaving the house he shares with Julie. However, Jamie's already on police radar and he is arrested because he provides, he refuses to provide a breath sample when he's stopped by police. At this point, police reach out to Angie and ask her about Jamie's behavior lately. Questions like, has he ever hurt her? Angie admits Jamie recently pushed her during an argument. Police then charge Jamie with domestic violence. How the muddy have fallen? A series of unfortunate events has unfolded and is going to end in utter devastation in just a few short months. Jamie is remanded into custody at EMDC until he can have a bail hearing his father david puts his name down to be jamie's surety and jamie is released under strict conditions for instance he must live with his parents in dunville and he must surrender his vehicle to police and among other things he must immediately abstain from buying and drinking alcohol it is approximately two weeks later that jamie and julie decide she'll apply to be his surety and transfer it from his father What's interesting to me, Squad, is that although Jamie was accused of domestic violence against his girlfriend as well, he was then released to his girlfriend. The same girlfriend that had police called by a relative, which is why Jamie got picked up in the first place. That seems totally backwards, but I'm not a person who reviews and grants bail or surety approvals, so what do I know? Julie is granted permission to be Jamie's surety, and she ensures there is no booze around the house for him to get into so he doesn't breach the conditions of his bail. When he's out awaiting his trial, Jamie tries to do the right things. He seeks support through the hospital in St. Thomas, specifically, again, regarding his mental health. He looks into addiction services, and he gets counseling. He is prescribed an anti-anxiety medication that gives him side effects that are undesirable. So the doctor continues to work with him to make sure he's feeling comfortable. Jamie tries to adjust to life without alcohol, but it's in December of 2014 that Julie happens to find an empty bottle of vodka in Jamie's things. Julie is an honest person who wants to adhere to the rules of her being Jamie's surety, which means she has to notify the courts that she is no longer going to be Jamie's surety. He needs to find himself a new one. Because of this, once Julie files that she is no longer his surety, there then becomes a warrant out for Jamie's arrest. He tries to hold it together by doing normal things. He signs paperwork from Angie related to their custody battle. He asks a friend to pick up clothes from her for him. He books a hotel room so he can have a place to stay. He contacts his friend, Dylan, and when Dylan arrives at the hotel and sees Jamie, he's concerned. He doesn't see the old Jamie he used to know, the strong, confident, well-dressed, coherent Jamie. Instead, he sees someone who he doesn't recognize, and he wants Jamie to get some help. Dylan drives Jamie to the hospital in St. Thomas, where he checks him in as an anonymous patient, hoping this will prevent police from being able to find him while he gets medical help. After Jamie is assessed through triage, he is admitted to the psychiatric unit of the hospital. But somehow police catch wind that Jamie is staying at the hospital and he's been admitted to the psych wing. They arrive just after midnight the same night and take him into custody. They arrest him on December 21st and take him back to EMDC. Okay squad, here is your trigger warning. I would like to warn you that the following timeline is going to depict a disturbing downfall and eventual death of an individual and it may not be for everyone's ears. If you wanna skip this, uh, I would skip ahead about three minutes and 30 seconds. Let's go over the timeline as presented by Randy Richmond in the award-winning journalist piece in On December 21st, 2014, when Jamie is booked around 2 a.m., he has an elevated heart rate. It is documented that he is acting bizarre and he is placed on suicide watch. I believe he was put into a segregation cell. By 3 p.m. that afternoon, Jamie complains that he is cold. He says he vomited his breakfast. He says he's been off his medications for five days and he's talking about his anti-anxiety medication. It is 24 hours later on December 22nd around 3 a.m. that Jamie says he isn't feeling well and that he had recently drank alcohol and was coming off the use of steroids. He asks for Tylenol, but it's unclear if this is ever provided to him. Later that morning, Jamie appears in St. Thomas Court and counsel expresses concern about his state. The presiding justice of the peace tells EMDC Jamie should be placed in a medical needs unit and assessed by proper medical staff when he returns to the detention centre. EMDC, however, does not have a medical needs unit, therefore, this does not occur. Throughout the day of December 22nd, Jamie stands naked in his cell. He is sweating profusely. By that evening, he is sent to the healthcare ward. He is presenting as extremely anxious and the healthcare team attributes these symptoms to withdrawal from one of his anti-anxiety medications. Later that night, Jamie is given his first and only dose of his medication. From this point forward, Jamie will go from someone who is aware and coherent to someone who appears to be suffering from extreme distress. On the morning of December 23rd, 2014, Jamie is observed pacing his cell, mumbling to himself, naked. He makes grunting noises and healthcare staff checks him but determines he is okay well enough to remain in his cell. Just minutes later, Jamie is lying on the cold hard floor of his cell, still naked in the fetal position. He is babbling. He is incoherent. His pupils are tiny pinpricks. He is unsteady on his feet and taken to a video room for a court appearance. 10.20 a.m., Jamie leans on his bunk. 10 minutes later, he is again laying on the floor. Just 13 minutes later at 10.43 a.m., Jamie does not have vital signs. Staff perform CPR but it is at 11.30 a.m. Jamie is pronounced dead. His family and his friend Dylan, the one who helped Jamie by getting him to the hospital, are blissfully unaware, having booked visits to see him at EMDC on Tuesday, December 23rd and Wednesday, December 24th. Dylan has the 23rd booked and is looking forward to seeing Jamie and making sure he's okay. However, oddly Dylan gets a call that morning to say that Jamie High has declined his visit. Then he gets a call from Jamie's lawyer that Jamie is being transported to a hospital. Dylan drives to the hospital hoping to check in with Jamie and see if he's okay and see what he can do to help if anything. When he arrives, he sees Jamie's family has made the trip from Dunville and are also arriving to see their beloved son and brother. But the news they got was not at all the news they were expecting. Jamie was dead and the hospital unsealed his body so the family could identify him. It's Jamie. Jamie, their hockey playing, make everyone smile, son. Jamie, the story reading Protective Big Brother. Jamie High, a 40-year-old man who had everything going for him, who stood at the top of a mountain of success, only to plunge into a death sentence at a local detention facility when he hadn't even yet been convicted of a crime. Jamie's parents, siblings, wife, and the estate representing his children launched a lawsuit totaling $5.5 million against multiple agencies and doctors related to Jamie's death. The lawyer representing the family drafted in a statement of claim that, quote, Jamie's death was preventable and that if Jamie had received proper medical care and treatment, Jamie would have lived, end quote. The statement of claim alleges many things, but here are some highlights I would like to share. The St. Thomas Hospital failed to ensure Jamie received proper medical care. Nursing staff failed to advise police officers that they had to wait until the physician in charge cleared Jamie for release before officers took him out of the hospital. Little or no communication took place between nursing staff and police about Jamie's medication, care, or treatment. No one from police to nursing staff contacted EMDC to provide them with a file for Jamie regarding his health concerns, needs, care, or treatment. The province failed to ensure Jamie received proper care at EMDC. Despite inhibiting, exhibiting increasing signs of medical distress, at no point did High see a doctor while at EMDC, nor was he taken to hospital by staff. As I've mentioned before, it is easy to place judgment on these criminals that end up in jail. After all, you play with fire and you're gonna get burned, right? But just try to think about this for a second. Jamie wasn't even convicted of a crime. He was in custody, awaiting a surety or trial. And in fact, if Jamie was convicted of domestic violence, lawyers would not have sought jail time to begin with. And yet, Jamie was sentenced. He was given a death sentence and he died naked, cold, and alone, unable to express himself. He tried to tell EMDC staff he needed help, but his cries went unanswered. Imagine your son, your daughter, your niece or nephew, your sister, your brother. Hell, imagine anyone you have any care for at all, someone you respect and admire, slipping a little in life, ending up at EMDC, and from there, ending up in the ground. Does it change your mind on the sentiment you play with fire, you get burned? going to do it for this episode of Crime Squad podcast special series, The Devil's Playground. There will be more episodes along this vein coming out over the weeks. There are still 15 deaths to cover. I'm going to do something a little bit differently. Uh, I know I do weekly uploads, but as some of you might have caught in my last episode, I am actually expecting my second child. And taking care of a toddler as well as working full time um, and being pregnant uh, is taking a toll on me. So I don't think I can commit to weekly uploads. I'm going to actually just change it to biweekly. So uh, I will update that on my Instagram page as well. Stay tuned in a couple of weeks for another episode. And if you like how I deliver content, please give a rating and a follow. It really helps the show. For those of you who are part of the squad and want to brag about it, consider buying a Crime Squad mug. Check out my Instagram at Crime Squad pod for merchandise details. Stickers will be coming shortly as well through a local business I'm going to be supporting. And stay tuned for an announcement on the contest winner of the contest I have out tomorrow evening. As always squad, my last message to you is stay safe and be kind to each other.